Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's programs, conversations that are important to the community. The Council on American-Islamic Relations, or CARE, was founded in 1994. Edward Ahmad Mitchell, the group's deputy executive director, joins me to discuss what CARE has found in its latest civil rights report and what issues they're advocating for this year. Also, what's taking place at the Atlanta Housing Authority as we enter a new year? President and CEO Eugene Jones talks about the agency's role in providing affordable housing for low-income residents. All those conversations coming up next, but first this. Georgia House Speaker David Rostin says lawmakers will start discussing a major overhaul of Georgia's mental health services network. This week they're going to do that. Rostin told members of the Georgia Municipal Association earlier today there's lots to get done. We're going to add additional crisis bed space, train our police on de-escalation techniques, and expand our accountability court system which is doing an amazing job. This week, we will introduce a comprehensive mental health reform bill that will address key issues like provider parity, workforce development, and expanding treatment options for those in need. Speaker Rostin added, Georgia has been consistently ranked as one of the worst states in the country when it comes to access to mental health services. And the Kaiser Family Foundation says the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has negatively impacted Americans' mental health and made it hard for many already suffering from some type of mental condition and also substance abuse users to find treatment. In other news, Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens is asking Georgia lawmakers for their help to stop Buckhead from peeling off and creating its own city. Dickens spoke to members of the Georgia House this morning who welcomed him with a standing ovation. This city plays a critical role in our in driving our state's economy, and we take that role very seriously in Atlanta. That makes it all the more imperative that you help us maintain this position by recognizing that as a, as a city, we are stronger together. One city with one bright future. What is good for Atlanta is good for Georgia. Dickens says it's his fourth visit to the state capitol to talk with lawmakers since he was inaugurated in early January. The Buckhead Cityhood movement faced a setback earlier this month when one of the measures that would have put the issue to voters was sent to a committee entirely of Democrats that's unlikely to advance the bill. Republican lawmakers who support the movement still have other legislative pathways. 
And in more Buckhead City Movement news, because you just can't get enough, the organization pushing for Buckhead to become its own city has filed a lawsuit against Mayor Andre Dickens and the city of Atlanta over code violations. The suit filed last week alleges the city selectively chose to cite the Buckhead City Committee for parking and sign violations at the group's headquarters on Peachtree. The lawsuit says Atlanta officials have taken improper actions to harm the committee and stifle its message at a time when Georgia lawmakers are considering cityhood measures. A spokesperson for Atlanta tells WABE the city has not yet been served with a complaint. Stay tuned. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here in Atlanta, where we're amplifying all those conversations we think are important. Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. For years now on this program, you all know we've been focusing on the Atlanta region's housing affordability issues. From the aging population to millennials to how where one lives impacts their quality of life. I want to revisit what some of those issues were even back in 2017. happening in the city many of the communities that have really stuck through the hard times and now the redevelopment's coming people are getting pushed out and they are not there to reap the benefits when they've lived in a food desert or when their schools have been failing those people deserve to reap in the benefits of what the city is is becoming it really is a ticking time bomb for our region and many people have turned away from it because it's not an easy answer We've lost about 5,000 affordable housing units in Atlanta uh, over the past couple years. Um, so, so rents are getting higher. I'm concerned about what neighborhoods and what the city looks like 20 years from now. Do we have a Beltline that is just for the affluent? Do we have a city that's just for the affluent? I think one of my initial evaluations is that we may have lost sight of people a little bit. There's 10,000 seniors that enter the market every day, but there's not 10,000 units being built for them to live in. This is a crisis stage right now. We're not approaching a crisis stage, we're already in it. I would assume I am the target demographic. I am a young millennial. I really just don't know who the people are that are affording these places. If you look up on the horizon, the change that coming is a tsunami. <laughs> and if we don't match that, shifting the way that we see the world, we know we're not going to be able to live here. That always stays with me. The more things change, the more they stay the same, eh? Newly elected Mayor Andre Dickens believes the city of Atlanta and the Atlanta Housing Authority can work together with a viable solution. Now, here's Mayor Dickens on Closer Look last month. But you said one factor could be building on publicly owned vacant land. 
Mm-hmm. And the Atlanta Housing Authority owns a lot of it. Sure does. However, and you know Eugene Jones, the CEO, mm-hmm. he says that that's not so easy. There's a lot of regulations and all that that come about. How do you propose working with this agency here? Because it appears that the Atlanta Housing Authority and the city of Atlanta should be working hand in hand together right. with this. Yeah, I mean, I, I respect Eugene, and I'm sh- I'm hopeful that whatever he said, it was a lot more than that it was difficult. I'm hoping that he said what I need him to say, which is uh, we're going to do it, even though well, it's difficult. Well, you said it could take years. Developments could take years. Well, yeah. And, you know, right now, if you're a private developer and you want to build one of these apartment complexes, it's going to take you about 18 months to two years. So that's just standard construction. But with the red tape with federals, federal governments and the grants, it might add on a year to that. But in my first year, we're going, in my first term, if I'm blessed to have two terms, but in my first term, we're going to build on Atlanta Housing Authority land. We're going to Bowen. We're going to Herndon. We're going to Inglewood. We must. How viable is this? And what are some of the current initiatives with the Atlanta Housing Authority? Joining me now is President and CEO Eugene Jones. Welcome back to the program. I appreciate you taking the time. CEO Jones, do we have you? Sorry about that. Good afternoon. How are you? How are you doing joining my show late? You know better than that. Yeah, I had a little technicality here. I hear you. But I'm good. How are you? Doing all right. How are you doing? Listen, in that opening montage from five years ago, same issues, different year. What stood out to you, though, as you listened to all of that? That was from 2017. Mm -hmm. It's going to continue on uh, to subsequent years. I think the mayor just um, hit it right on the the head. We have to work together. We are going to be working together, and we're going to show the mayor that we can do what he has asked us to do, and many other uh, constituents in this great city of Atlanta. You heard, we're here to work. That's what we're supposed to be doing. You heard so many people talk about housing afford- affordability in Atlanta has reached. You heard Ryan Gravel say it was a tsunami. You heard, you heard the late Dot Benson talk about it's it's beyond a crisis. How do you see Atlanta's housing affordability in our region here? I, I just think that, um, as the mayor has stated, we need to bring this up to the top five com- uh, communications that we talk about how we want to improve neighborhoods in the city. Housing is always the last thing on everyone's list, excluding this mayor that we had in the previous mayor. We need to make sure that we can work together, bring the resources together, bring the right people to the table. Uh, we want to do a best job. We want to do a great job. We are doing a great job. We have a great staff who are committed to providing more uh, housing. And just like the mayor has stated, the red tape has been um, one of the um, biggest uh, points, but also resources to make these uh, developments come to fruition. We're trying to speed up the time to go to development from start to finish. Mm -hmm. We got about four or five uh, developments that we're going to have in 2022 that the mayor is going to come and break ground or cut ribbons as we provide some affordable housing. And we'll, great and we'll get to some of those in a moment, but I want to uh, step back for a second. You said make sure we have everybody at the table when it comes to solving this from a regional standpoint from Atlanta. Who should be at the table? We need a practitioners who really know how to do housing. I don't need university people. I don't need people talking about pie in the sky. And I don't want to be doing another assessment and reevaluating another assessment. And then we get to a point where we're not making decisions. We got to make a decision now. The dollar today is not worth a dollar two or three years down the road. So we need to make decisions. We need to move forward and let the people who really understand and really know how to build affordable housing and also provide wraparound services and create a community, a neighborhood, a seamless transition 
that we can fit into a community and not be an eyesore saying that you go down the street, you walk down the street and you say, oh, that's got to be public housing. No, mm -hmm. you don't know if that's public housing. It's income housing. The housing, the Atlanta housing built, builds right now rivals anything on the private sector. I want to go back. You said we don't need university people. You mean you don't you, you want to. I don't need another assessment. I don't need them to take another look. I don't need another study. We all know where poverty is at. We already know where the socially impacted and impoverished. We already know that. What we need to do is, is put that information together, put some resources together, get the practitioners there, and let us loose and let us build housing. Take some of the red tape out, and so that we would. We need some red tape because we want to make sure everything environmentally safe for our residents and potential residents. But we need to get going. We need. We need the state. We need the city, we need the federal government all coming together to build affordable housing, whatever that means today, because what's affordable to a, a person that works at McDonald's or to a teacher is quite different from a millionaire looking at their affordability and what they can purchase. And correct, we're not trying to move people out of their neighborhoods, we're trying to bring them back mm -hmm. and trying to make those rents and the stability in that neighborhood um, uh, be viable for many, many years to come. CEO, listening to that, and, and a listener may say, wow, that sounds great, but how do you do that, particularly when there's something you can't control, which is the market, which is it could be surrounding market value of, of, of adjacent property? And and I could list neighborhoods and communities, but then I'll get all these emails, but we all know where they yeah. are, but I, I could list them. How do you propose to do all of that? That's a challenge for you all as It just well. takes leadership. It, it takes leadership and take, it takes consistency. And you have, a, you have to have a great staff to understand what the mission is and that we're here to provide a service to our residents and to maintain what we have in preservation, trying to make sure they're the best uh, uh, developments across this, across this city, but also come together and look at our partners and create great partnerships and long lasting partnerships. And we need consistency at the top all the way down to the bottom so that we can move these developments on in the right direction. People should note, because some don't, that the Atlanta Housing Authority is not an agency within the city of Atlanta, but you all do work closely together. When you heard that clip, you heard Mayor Dickens say, y'all have a lot of property, so let's get to building. But it is not that easy because you all are mandated through HUD. There are some things that you, there are regulations that you all must follow, correct? That's correct. And let me just let me just spell those rumors of all the, the, the vacant land that we have. Yes, we have vacant land, but it's been it's it's uh, divided in, in the stages. About a hundred and let me see, let me make sure I'm getting this right here. Yeah, I hear you over there shuffling papers. You know, about um, 188 acres right now is already committed to developers. That means we're getting ready to close those developments and start building on them. Okay. That's 188 acres. Another 112 acres. We already have master development agreements to get to the developer to start building affordable housing. Mm -hmm. The only vacant land, true vacant land that we have is 91 acres. As I had conversations with the mayor before, we want to do some type of self-development. Those 91 acres, we're going to do self-development and build affordable housing on those, on, those uh, on that vacant land. Now, I'm not sure how many we're going to build, but we're going to look at that because we're going to do parallel tracks. We're going to do the traditional developer. We're also going to look at self-development. Self-development means we hire a program manager, developer, and also a construction company and do cookie cutter affordable housing where we think it makes sense. It could be 40 units here. It could be 60 units here. It could be walk-ups, but we're going to build back on our, on our vacant land. But that also entails 
having the right resources at the table. Is this all rental? These properties that where these acres are. We, we all- want to do a mixture of rental is primary rentals. We also want to build home ownership opportunities. And that's what we want to get to. We want people to be on this program and mature and get off this program to buy their own house. We have two programs, one on the public housing side, and we have a family self-sufficiency. And on the housing choice voucher side, we have choose their own. And so we are one of the biggest entities in the country who provide home ownership across this uh, country. And we look very, very good here in the city of Atlanta of providing those resources. If but just- we have partners who help us. We do um, 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 second mortgages. We, we uh, let those go after five years. Um, if they choose to sell the home, we want to be in a position where we can buy back that home and do the same thing for another individual trying to buy a home in the city of Atlanta. If you just join us, I'm in conversation with the president and CEO of the Atlanta Housing Authority, Eugene Jones. I want to go back because I think also there is either some misperceptions or people just don't quite know exactly what you all do. When we think of Atlanta housing authorities or any housing authorities, we immediately think of public housing and they're the ones that, are the, that, that develop it, that operate the programs. But now, as you're telling me, there's so much more that you all do. Now, I remember some years ago covering this where you had thousands and thousands of people on a waiting list. They'll let yes, you know just the demand for it. Is that still the same? I think you had 13,000 people at one point on these roles and, and you weren't here then. But I'm curious, why does that look now? It's still the same. It's still the same across the whole country. Well, let me break it down on the housing authority. Housing authority predominantly has two programs, a public housing program, which public housing are units that are outright owned by the housing authority. Mm-hmm. And then you have the Section 8 program or, or also called the housing choice voucher. Those are uh, units that we try to saturate the city uh, with opportunities, better housing, better neighborhoods, less crime. And so that we contract with the landlord and we provide housing assistance to the landlord as well as to the resident, but to put them in better um, living conditions and better areas closer to work, closer to libraries, mm-hmm. closer to a better uh, choice of living for the, for the kids and their family. And so right now we service about 50,000 uh, individuals in, in, in the city. Uh, we have um, a, a robust program for the Section 8 side. And we also have a great program, which is mostly seniors on the public housing side. And so uh, another thing we want to say is that uh, there's only 39 housing authorities out of the 3,300 across this country that are MTWs. That means moving to work. We have the opportunity to fund our resources and not just have a, you know, a pocket of money here, a pocket of money there for operation, a pocket of money for uh, uh, fine uh, uh wraparound services, mm-hmm. we can fund our money together and, and leverage those dollars and bring more programs, more job opportunities, and, and just uh, uh, doing, doing better in the neighborhoods and being a partner instead of being an outcast. And your funding directly comes from HUD. Is that true? Well, 98% of our funding comes from HUD. We get grants. Uh, outside of that, we get philanthropic dollars. And so most of that is come, comes from HUD. How much and we're you, very gracious of that. I imagine. How much do you all get on a... In a fiscal year, well, how does we that have break about down? A half a billion dollars is our budget. Mm-hmm. Um, about two hundred fifty million dollars of that is with the Section Eight program. Then the rest is the operations for public and uh, and and, and uh, development in our housing uh, stock. So two hundred fifty so goes. Two hundred fifty million has to go toward operations. Uh huh. And two hundred fifty million dollars goes through that Section Eight program, providing all those services. Now you had to understand the two hundred fifty million dollars on the public housing side is for developments. The developments that we're doing right now, like in Inglewood, mm-hmm. like in 
uh, where we get ready to propose in Bowen Homes. So that goes to the, the, the investment in those properties. I want to talk about the Civic Center. I don't think a lot of folks know that you all you all own the Civic Center property, correct? Yeah, don't you like that beautiful signage? Now look, I, I, I roam around there. I ride my bike. I play basketball over there at Central Park. I, I see that. I see that big place. I'm like, what's happening? What's going on with the Civic Center? I'm going to put my picture right there on that. On that uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, right now we we're we, we're looking at some um, uh, evaluations from some RPs that we received from some developers in order to develop that property to make it look just. Um, just fabulous. Uh, we had a conversation with the mayor. He has a vision that we want to try to take and uh, and put affordable housing there. We want to we want to put something that makes sense. We think that the public's uh, uh, grocery store will move up there in that development. I want to keep the theater. I think theater is is uh, something that everyone understands or knows about in this city uh, because of the graduations and everything else that's been happening there. But also, I refer to uh, a board member about. Um, uh, buttermilk property. We want to maintain that. We want to be a destination uh, point in the city of Atlanta. And I think it's a great opportunity. It's 19 acres. We hope the developers going to come in here with best use uh, uh, sources. We're going to get back with the community. We're going to talk to them because that's the most important thing in this endeavor. We're going to talk to the city staff and we're going to talk to our partners about how we're going to put this deal together and, and close this and hopefully start building something in, in 2023 if we can put everything together real quickly. And it's on a fast track. They've had this since 2017. Everyone's been sitting there. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Yeah, it's been sitting for five years, just just sitting there. I've seen some squirrels and a few wayward cats roaming around there. You just. <laughs> well, the grass has been cut. It looks beautiful. <laughs> We've been maintaining that. Um, we got the big old signage. We're going to do some other things to start in that maturation of how we're going to improve uh, the Civic Center and make it look uh, just great. What goes into when you have these conversations for developers, what are you looking for them? Obviously, we know they can build, I mean, physically build. But what else are you looking for when you all are going to choose a developer? I'm looking for innovation. I don't want cookie cutter anymore. I want something that's outstanding in a, in a community and says, wow, this is why we live in this community, because we have all these fantastic resources. It's not just, the, you know, the concrete the, the units and so forth. What are the amenities? Can we put a pool there? Can we have a walking path around the property and make something make sense? Can we put a roadway in the middle of it and make it you know, just like a park-like setting? Mm-hmm. How do we make this? When you come home, all you have to do is park your car and everything around the surrounding community you can walk to and enjoy. Restaurants, libraries, um, whatever your, your choice could be. How can you make that more livable and more affordable that everyone can enjoy and not and not saying you know all the the market rate people over here all the tax credit people over here mm-hmm. and all the public housing assisted housing over there no the mixing community makes sense and it provides an opportunity for us to do something based on uh our our, our uh, practices from like a scholars uh program mm-hmm. over on the on the west side how can we make this look better how can we make this look different you when we started this program and you were very in a passionate way, you describe that it's time for action. You don't want any more studies. You don't need any more reports. We know what the problem is. But when we look at how crucial this this year is, and even under Mayor Dickens' term here, his first term, when it comes to housing affordability, the role of the Atlanta Housing Authority and you yourself as the leader in this agency and in some actionable outcomes that citizens can start to, to say, look, okay, here I see where we're going here. And, and, and folks can begin to start moving into some places. 
and not have to wait five and 10 years. That's correct. But we don't want to be the housing last resort either. Mm-hmm. We don't want to say, well, you know, I looked around the city and I looked around. Well, let me go to Atlanta housing because then I get housing. No, we're not the housing last resort. We're the housing that's going to provide opportunities, affordability. You write the wrongs that have been done or try to correct them and try to work with the community. We're not doing this on our own. We have to have the community involved. We have certain uh, uh, limitations. We have certain things that we have to do. But ultimately, someone's got to make a decision. Hopefully, everyone's going to accept that and then move forward. We have too many examples of pro- properties, developments have worked. We're going to use what we, what we, the good things that we've used, and we're going to hopefully not repeat the bad things that we experienced and, and make this, make this, make what we are, Atlanta housing, that everyone knows what we're doing. We're going to be very transparent. If we can't do something, we're going to tell you we can't do it. If we can do it, we're going to do it. And if we can't do something, we're going to try to figure out how we can do it because everyone should have an opportunity to uh, take advantage of, of what we do. Is there something that's opening? This year, though, that you're gonna, you all are gonna cut the ribbon on. I know you had some. Um, well, we, yes, we got about five different developments that we got coming to close. So we're gonna be break, breaking ground probably in the in the in uh, the second quarter and the third quarter. And so we'll be looking at for about at least between four and five. But also, people don't understand and recognize about the preservation these RAD programs that we have with a rich rental assistant demonstration programs, which we take our public housing stock, which is our senior buildings, mm-hmm. and we convert it to Section 8. And the reason why we do this is because of the lack of resources from Congress. Here's a program that gives an opportunity to get a developer and get those major um, uh, systems in place, new elevators, new um, uh, chillers, all those types of things, convert those to maintain the highest quality of living for our seniors and also our family. Our senior developments rival anything in the private sector when it comes to community space, um, uh, uh, technical um, uh, uh, space, uh, IT space, uh, weight room, exercise room. We got it and we maintain it to the highest uh, level that we can. I toured the one down, I think, off of Juniper Street some years ago, uh, which is a very nice facility. Looks looks nice. I figured, you know. Maybe twenty years from now, if I need to get up in there, then hopefully y'all, <laughs> y'all. <laughs> As we wrap up, how important is it that with this current administration, that there is this nationwide approach to, not just with infrastructure, but obviously with housing affordability for folks. I think the mayor is right on point. I think uh, Mayor Bottoms, and I'm, I'm glad the mayor is going to continue uh, building more affordable housing. I mean, we always think about the minimum. We've got to start thinking about the maximum. I think, you know, 40 units out of 500 units of affordability is not enough, ladies and gentlemen. It's just not enough. Everyone said, well, we at least we got affordability. No, we, we just, that's not going to be enough. That's not going to get us there. And everyone's complaining about we don't have enough affordable housing, but we're not trying to mandate these developers to build more affordable housing. It's a money game. If no one else doesn't want to tell you, I'm going to tell you right now, it's a money game. Whether I build a market rate unit because I'm getting more rent, or do I want to build an affordable unit when I have to make up the market to uh, uh, cancel out the affordability? It should not be. How can we reduce the construction costs of some of these uh, developments that we can provide more amenities? You know, we want we want to our residents want the pool. They want a great neighborhood. They want um, a, a community center. They want where kids can go and be safe. Mm-hmm. We want the same thing. Uh, we're not any different from anyone else. We got good partners. I have a great staff that we know that we're on this, the same mission. Our board of commissioners gives us the opportunity to make these things uh, real. 
In other words, 15% is not enough when you're talking about building. Eugene Jones, President and CEO of the Atlanta Housing Authority. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Conversations we continue to have. Thank you. Thank you. And Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE, amplifying Atlanta by bringing you news and information. Earlier this year, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, or CARE, released their latest annual civil rights report, Islamophobia in the Mainstream. And this year, the report documented what the organization cited as millions of dollars, in fact, more than $105 million over a two-year period, as they put it, raised to spread information and support anti-Muslim policies. Let's talk about that now with Edward Ahmed Mitchell. He's the deputy executive director for the Council on American Islamic Relations. You may his name may sound familiar because he's been a guest on this program so many times when he was here in the Atlanta area, and then he got swooped up and sent to D.C. Director Mitchell, welcome back. Good afternoon, Rose. Thank you for having me. It's it's wonderful to be back with you after so long. Do you miss us? Uh, I do. I do. Uh, the pandemic obviously changed everything right around the time I moved to the national level. Uh, but Georgia is very much still on my mind uh, and on the, the mind of the nation. So it's a pleasure to be back with you. Let's begin here. For listeners not familiar with the work of CARE, what is the mission of the organization? I gave a brief, you know, it was founded in 1994. But what do you want listeners to know about this organization? Sure. You know, CARE is our nation's largest Muslim civil rights and advocacy organization. What the NAACP does for African-Americans, we strive to do for American Muslims. That means, first and foremost, defending Muslims from discrimination, from bigotry, uh, from harassment, and then empowering Muslims to advance positive change in this country and around the world, especially our youth. And you all have chapters and cities across the nation. What is the role of these affiliations? Yes, yeah, so our chapters are in about 30 different cities and states. Uh, they have grassroots support and they make sure they're defending local communities everywhere from California to Texas to Minnesota uh, to Florida. And so it's very ha- important to have local uh, care organizations that can defend local Muslim American communities when issues arise in those places. When you say defend, what does that look like? So, for example, if a Muslim woman uh, is fired for wearing a hijab, if a uh, Muslim student at school is being bullied because their last name is Ali, if a mosque is burned down, all of those things uh, would trigger, obviously, our concern, our involvement. Um, and so it's, it's our, our sworn responsibility to defend American Muslims from those and other uh, acts of discrimination and hate. I want to dig into this newly released civil rights report, Islamophobia in the Mainstream. First, what was the timeline for the information that you all collected and the research that was conducted? 2017 to 2019. Our, our last report on the same subject was 2014 mm-hmm. to 2016. So this report we're talking about today is the follow-up to that report covering again 2017 to 2019. What was the focus, Director Mitchell? So the main focus is trying to identify how anti-Muslim hate groups are being funded, and in many cases by mainstream charitable foundations. We so often think that anti-Muslim extremists are just, you know, keyboard warriors in their mother's basement or, you know, random people who are attacking other people on the streets. But many anti-Muslim entities are organized, well-funded hate groups that are dedicated to spreading misinformation about Islam and Muslims. So we wanted to track where are these groups getting their money 
from. First of all, how do you identify a group? And then with the second part, that obviously will be how do you track this? How are you all able to identify this group? We know that the uh, there's many organizations that, that I'd come out with an annual hate, what they call a hate group report, a hate watch report. How do you all identify these these organizations? Right. So there are many different uh, human rights and civil rights organizations that uh, put together lists of hate groups, uh, Southern Poverty Law Center and others. And here, what we do is use the definition of Islamophobia. Uh, if you have a prejudice against Muslims and you support treating Muslims unequally under the law, banning Muslims from this country, or otherwise discriminating against Muslims uh, or spreading information, misinformation about Islam and Muslims, then we would consider you an anti-Muslim organization and then look to see where you're getting your funding from. And so you all looked at five buckets or five categories here, correct? Correct. So what we do is first we start with the the, the anti-Muslim organization first, and then we look to see where it's getting its funding from. And we were curious in particular about mainstream charitable foundations. So number one, our private family foundations. Number two, our donor advised foundations, and then also faith-based donor advised foundations and how they were taking money and then funneling it to anti-Muslim groups. Why do you do that? You said, because there, look, there are so many foundations in, in this nation. You're just simply saying if they made a donation or if they partner with them, then that you all see that as fueling hate in this country against uh, American Muslims. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. So if you look at our last report, it was about $125 million given to about 36 different anti-Muslim groups. The good news is that in our new report, that number dropped by about $20 million. So it's down to $105 million. That is obviously still a massive amount of money that anti-Muslim groups are able to use to spread misinformation about Islam, to target American Muslim organizations and leaders, and to engender uh, hate. So it's it's very dangerous because this money contributes to hate speech, which ultimately can contribute to hate crimes. So we think it's very important to track the money and encourage these mainstream foundations, which often may not realize what they're doing and who they're funding, to consider changing course. That was my next question. Do you all reach out and have dialogue or conversations with these foundations that you all have cited as possibly intentionally or not funneling money to these organizations? Yes, absolutely. And in some cases, they change course. So, for example, of the 50 largest groups we looked at last time around, uh, only 35 of those were still giving money to anti-Muslim organizations. There was a drop in, in 15 groups, which is good. That's progress, right? Some of them, many of them, though, are aware of what they're doing. And so talking to them won't change their mind. They're very conscious of the fact that they're funding anti-Muslim organizations, and that is what they want to do. So there's no changing their minds. Others uh, are doing what they're doing, not because they want to do it, but because it's legally allowed. So for example, a donor advised fund, their responsibility is they take a donation, uh, they then can give that donation to a 501c3 based on the recommendation of the donor. And as long as that entity uh, that they're donating to is a 501c3 and checks the other boxes of that uh, donor advised fund, they'll give the money away. So what uh, uh, entities like Schwab and Infeldi said last round is, look, we're not, we don't want to support hate groups. All we're doing is giving money to registered 501c3s. Mm -hmm. And we'll certainly look into this if we're giving money to hate groups. So uh, for those entities, it's not like they want to cause harm, but from their perspective, they're just giving money to people that they've been recommended to give money to. How thorough is then the the research and the vetting of these organizations? Because you can understand, Director Mitchell, if you all cite an organization that unintentionally did not mean to do this, that that could be, that could be an unfair backlash on them. 
Right, right. So the thing about these mainstream foundations is they're very good at what they do. They move a lot of money. So they know who they're giving money to. It's just a question of, are you concerned, right? Mm -hmm. Because for these uh, DAFs, donor advised funds, they don't just stop at the 501c3 analysis. They also have their own standards they look at when making a decision about whether or not they're going to act on the recommendation the donor made. And so what we're saying to these foundations is it's not enough for you just to say, okay, they check the basic boxes. You really have to do a hate analysis to see are the entities you're donating to using money to spread hate of any community, whether it's the Jewish community, the Muslim community, African-Americans or others. Hate analysis. What does that look like? So I think, number one, you have to look and see are the groups you're donating to designated as hate groups on based on the findings of mainstream organizations like Mm -hmm. the Southern Poverty Law Center, like CARE, like the NAACP and others. If these groups have been designated as hate groups, then you should really have a a question in your mind. Should I be giving money to these groups? Mm -hmm. And then also look at what they actually do. Right. If they are claiming that Islam is dangerous and Muslims don't belong in America, you don't need uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center to tell you that you shouldn't be giving money to that entity. One of the initiatives that you all have also been focusing on for some years now deals with Islamophobia and school bullying. I wanted to focus on that and see what inroads are you all making and just for folks who don't know how big of an issue this is in our nation's schools. It's it's a huge issue and it's a serious issue Uh, every week. Uh, In our school system across America, you've got Muslim students who are being bullied because of their name, because they wear a hijab, or because they they might be praying at school. One of the scary things that our report has found over and over again is that it's not just students bullying other students, that sometimes it's the teachers uh, engaging in this behavior, and sometimes it's administrators who don't take it seriously when they hear about it. And even more frighteningly than that, so many students don't report bullying at all. They don't tell their parents, they don't tell the school because they don't think it will help. Uh, and so usually we are, we're very confident that the numbers we're getting are undercounted, mm-hmm. that there are a lot of students out there experiencing bullying who don't talk about it. But of those who do report it, it's a large and scary percentage. Well, and finally, as we begin to wrap up, because I'm, I'm afraid we're, we're up on time here, but I, I've got to ask you this. How do you all gauge and assess the effectiveness of some of your initiatives even with a report like this, is it just simple? Is something saying there's a victory if we know now that this foundation or this charitable organization is not going to give money to, to this group? How do you assess then the, the effectiveness of your work? That's a great question. Look, I think everyone who's in the civil rights struggle knows that you never can expect to get to a point where there's zero discrimination or bigotry. We've been fighting anti-Semitism for decades in this country. It's still there. We've been fighting anti-Black racism. It's still there. Islamophobia is not going to disappear. But what we want to do is turn it, change it from a mortal threat to a nuisance. And so when we see that 15 foundations that were giving money to anti-Muslim groups four years ago aren't doing that anymore, that's progress. If we see the percentages of students reporting uh, reporting bullying drop, that's progress. So we try to do annual surveys, polling to see whether or not things are changing and improving and also do these reports you know, regularly so that we can see the progress or lack thereof. Edward Ahmed Mitchell is the Deputy Executive Director for the Council on American Islamic Relations. Thank you so much for taking the time. We'll have a link to the report so our listeners who want to take a more thorough glance at it can do that. Thank you so much, Director Mitchell. Thank you, Rose. 
And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead. Our other producers are Janine Edder, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. You can send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. By the way, have you checked out our new website? Please do so, wabe.org. And we also on, we're on Facebook. Can you believe that, Sam? Whitehead, senior producer. Sam is smiling, laughing. Is that a good thing, Sam? What's up with that? Oh, Sam says no one's on Facebook anymore. <laughs> I'll let marketing know that. <laughs> By the way, so many of you reached out and you got that St. Louis chili recipe. And I'm happy to report that so far the feedback has been good, except for one person who decided to make it Memphis barbecue. Come on, Jamaica, what you doing, sis? You did. I added mustard and barbecue sauce. Then it's not St. Louis chili. Come on, work with me. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.